Bible? How we doing? A few of you are okay? All right. All right, good. Um, well, some of you might be wondering about this ordination service that Ben has been talking about, wondering whether or not you had a fake pastor all this time, uh, all this kind of thing, right? Uh, a couple of you asked questions about that, what's going on with that, uh, and so I wanted to address what's going on uh, with that. Uh, you know, we talk, we've been talking about the church, and we've got our diagram, everybody's favorite diagram, up behind me. Um, and this kind of fits into that category of church order, if you will, of, uh, of biblically qualified uh, leadership. Uh, I was originally ordained um, back in 2004 with the church that I served in, which uh, is a independent Bible church, and what ordination is, is the church's seal that the man that they are laying hands on and commissioning for pastoral ministry is indeed qualified for that role as far as they can discern. And when I came here, we're an evangelical free church, and that did not uh, completely transfer over. Uh, even though my ordination is valid in the eyes, I think, of God, as well as the IRS, um, which is uh, also important, uh, at least to me, um, that uh, within the Evangelical Free Church, it did not have an official status. And so, uh, through a very long and drawn out, much more drawn out than I wanted to uh, process, I have successfully completed all the requirements to transfer my ordination officially into the Evangelical Free Church. So I am, as of, I think, August, an officially ordained, uh, certified uh, pastor within the Evangelical Free Church, which is exciting for me. Um, And uh, uh, the final step in that process is just to uh, have a worship service, which... Uh, publicly recognizes all that taking place. And and the exciting thing for me is that I get to have the man who mentored me in ministry, who really taught me what it meant to be a pastor, uh, who was my former boss at the first church that I served in, and who is still a dear friend. Uh, he is coming to do the message that night, and so you'll get to meet Pastor Steve, uh, a dear friend of mine, uh, you'll also uh, hear from Mark Balmer, who is the area superintendent with the Evangelical Free Church uh, here in, uh, in what they refer to as downstate Illinois. You know, a lot of those guys are around Chicago. And, uh, and so uh, Mark takes care of the churches downstate, and, um, and he will be here also to... Uh, uh, to confer that uh, that certification on me and so forth, so it's an important it's an important evening for me. Uh, it would be it would mean a lot to me if you would uh, would be here uh, for that. It's going to last only about an hour, uh, from five thirty to about six thirty. We tried to schedule that uh, so that it wouldn't necessarily conflict with anybody's small group. Uh, although uh, if it does conflict too badly. Um, you can obviously uh, do small group earlier or later, uh, and um, 
and we would just love for you to be here. So um, I hope you'll join us. That uh, That's next Sunday night, uh, so a week from today at 5.30, and uh, we'll celebrate a little bit together, and you'll get to see that and and see a, see a process uh, of the church putting its stamp uh, of approval on somebody, and that's an important thing. Now, with that, all that said, we need to dive into the Word of God together. Before we do that, I want to pray and just make sure we're really prepared for what the Lord has to speak to us. So let's pray. Father, we speak a lot of words every day. And we talk, some of us, too much. But Father, as the song says, may your word speak, and may we be silent before you enough that we might hear and really listen to what it is your word is teaching us, that our lives might be transformed thereby. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have been looking at the church together. Uh, this is uh, one of our last weeks in doing that. Uh, we've been looking at these, these three essential marks and three essential works, uh, things that, that make up the building blocks of a church as the Bible defines it. Uh, the three marks, as I've said, are orthodoxy or uh, teaching and believing and proclaiming what the Bible says about Jesus primarily, but also about other issues. Uh, order, which is biblically qualified leadership. Ordinances, which are baptism and communion. Church has to celebrate those. Uh, if it doesn't celebrate those, it's not a church. If it doesn't have right leaders, it's not a church. If it preaches other than what the Bible says, uh, it's not, a, not really a church, uh, even if it has a name that it is. Uh, the church also must evangelize the lost. It must reach out. It must obey Jesus and proclaim the gospel. A church that doesn't do that is not a church. Uh, the church must help people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ to grow to maturity in Christ. And we it's something, as we looked at last week, that we do together, that we together are maturing in Christ. And we're, we're working together to help each other grow up in various ways. And then in addition to that, there's this, uh, this category I've called exaltation, which is another, another way of saying worship. That a church, to be a church, has to worship God together and has to do so in a, in a biblical way. So we want to look at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 on that. Obviously, there's a whole lot of Bible we can turn to on the issue of worship and what it looks like. Uh, chapters and whole books written on that uh, within your Bible. But we want to look just at just briefly at 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll look at uh, verses, uh, verse 4 all the way down to verse 12. Beginning in verse 4 and 5, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Uh, if you look at verse 4 there closely with me, you'll see that Peter begins this passage with the words, as you come to him. Uh, his words are in the present tense, which in New Testament Greek carries the idea of continuous action taking place in the present. So the idea is, is that this is something we ought to be normally, regularly, frequently doing, of coming to Jesus who is the living stone. He's the originator. He is the essential piece of the building who was chosen by God to help us enter into a new way of worshiping God. So if you want to know what is at the bottom of everything, what is the church built on? It's built on Jesus primarily. And all of these component parts only work with reference to Jesus as the living stone. And then as you come to him, and as you continue to come to him, then you also, Peter says, are like living stones, plural, that we are related to him. And together with each other and with Jesus, we form a new spiritual house, a new temple. Uh, when, if you, as you look at your whole Bible, one of the things you need to understand is that one of the things that God is continually doing is making places where He can live with His people. And so that starts out in a garden, and you read about how God placed the man and the woman in the garden, and the Lord came to walk with the people that He had made in the midst of the garden in the cool of the day. And then they go into sin, and they get thrown out of the garden. And they can't be in the presence of God anymore. And so then God finds himself a people that he founds through Abraham. And then eventually he gives them instruction about a tabernacle. And he's going to build, a ta they're going to build this tent. And then God is going to come and dwell in the midst of them. And they're going to be able to relate to them. And he's going to live with them right in the middle of the camp. They're all in tents, so I'll be in a tent. And I'll be right in the middle of them. And then when they get into the land permanently established under Solomon, they're able to build a temple, a permanent house, because now all the people are in permanent houses. And so God is going to dwell in a permanent house right there in the middle of everything. And of course, the people were disobedient. The people went into exile. The temple was destroyed not once, but twice. And God is still, Peter says, in the process of creating a place for him to dwell. Only different, this time it's not a physical place. It's within people. And just like God is present when Jesus Christ is present, we are are able to come to God through Jesus Christ, and we together form the new temple, the new place where God dwells. So he dwells within each of us individually, but he also dwells within us corporately. As we come together, we form a new temple, a new house, a new place where God's presence dwells. This is exciting stuff. 
In fact, if you look at um, if you look at Ephesians, Paul talks about this same idea of God's presence now dwelling within us, and he uses the word for the holy of holies to describe how God dwells within His people. He uses that word. You know, I, I used to think when I would read my Old Testament, boy, that would have been so cool. You know, you could actually look out over the camp and you'd see the glory cloud come down on top of the tabernacle and you know God is there. You can actually see a physical, visible manifestation of the deity right there. And you see the pillar of cloud at night and you see the, the, I mean, the pillar of cloud in the day and the fire at night to give you light. And you watch the fire come down from heaven and divide you from the Egyptians and stand guard over you to the rear to keep the army from coming through. Until you get through the other side of the water, when the fire lifts off, they try to go through the ocean and they all drown. Wouldn't that have been amazing, right? And you go, wouldn't this be cool to actually be a little bit scared to go into the Holy of Holies because that's where God dwells. And yet Peter says... And John says, and Paul says, that God still dwells among his people. Only now he doesn't dwell in a building that you can see. He dwells in your heart, within you. And the same Shekinah glory that you could see in the Holy of Holies is now within you and me in this place. Now you look around. This is not a particularly spectacular building. Okay? I mean, it's serviceable. It works. Right? And it certainly meets the purposes for which we need it. But there's no gold on the walls. We don't have big solid bronze pillars out front like they did in front of the temple. Right? We don't have... You know, like a solid gold altar for me to stand behind, right? Like they did in Israel. Um, we're not going to be taking a collection for that either, incidentally. <laughs> All right? <laughs> we don't need that. Why? Because God does not dwell in a building as if he needed anything. He dwells within you and me because we have a new and better relationship with God than anyone in the Old Testament ever did. And Peter is pointing that out. He's saying, look, you are not only, in in addition to that, you no longer need a priest. You know, they had priests, and you had to go to this guy, and he came from a certain family within a certain tribe, within a certain nation, and you had to go to him if you wanted to worship God. But look what he says. He says, you are not only living stones within a new temple, you're also a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices to God, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are also priests under the new covenant. We no longer need to bring a sacrifice to him in order to remain alive because we are the sacrifice which God requires. And we remain alive while we offer it. We serve and we worship God as we live through Jesus Christ 
And we have become, therefore, the place where God's presence dwells. We have become the priests who offer sacrifice to God. And we have become, in fact, the sacrifice itself that is offered to God and which is made acceptable to Him, not on the basis of how wonderfully special we are, but on the basis of how wonderful Jesus is. is, His sacrifice makes our sacrifices acceptable to God. Because He dies on the cross, I can come to God and I can say to Him, Here is my life, Lord. You can have it all. And God does not turn away and say, I can't can't deal with you he says no i'll take it because jesus christ's blood covers you and therefore what you offer to me is acceptable it's exciting now there's more let's read read on here for it stands in scripture behold i am laying in zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now here in these verses, what Peter is doing, if you want to, if you want to draw in your Bible, you can. You can take a, a C, write yourself a big letter C, and put a line through it for contrast. There's a giant contrast between those who believe in Jesus and those who do not. He says, on the one hand, you who believe in Jesus are a holy priesthood offering holy sacrifices to God, and you are the new holy temple. But on the other hand, Jesus is also the fulfillment of prophecy in a negative way for those who have rejected him. For us, he is the cornerstone. He is the, the, that stone that you would lay in an ancient building. They didn't have you know, CAD programs and, and lots of tools that would help you make sure everything was square and level. They would take one rock and they would set it at the corner of the building And they would make sure that it was absolutely, as far as they could tell, square and level. It was the most important rock in that building. Because you were going to use that to mark your line off of everything else to make sure it was square and level. And so he says, for us, Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the one that that sets everything else in alignment with him. But he is also the one that is rejected by people who were supposed to recognize him. All of the the Sanhedrin and the Jewish high priests and the leaders of Jesus' own day all said, No, we will not have this man be king over us. We will not have this man as Messiah. We are looking for something better than this. And they stumbled over him. For for them, he was the stumbling stone and the rock of offense. They were offended that he would even claim the things that he claimed. And they looked at him, and because he was humble and gentle and came from an area of the country they did not expect and had an accent and seemed like 
kind of a hillbilly guy who was a carpenter from Galilee. And here they were, the sophisticated, educated, wealthy elite. They said, this cannot be the Messiah, son of David or not. This can't be what we've been waiting for hundreds of years to experience. And after all, I'm a better teacher than he is. I mean, he's just some rube from up north. For them, he is the stumbling stone and the rock of offense. For us, there is honor. Because we need never worry. That when we stand before God, we will stand before Him ashamed. When we come to God, we come not on the basis of ourselves, but on the basis of Jesus and His sacrifice. And therefore, we know that when we come to God, everything that we come with is acceptable in His sight. But on the other hand, for those who reject Jesus, He's the stumbling stone. How many of you have ever shared the gospel with someone and had them say to you, yeah, I don't think so? Anybody done that? Raise your hand. Done that. Okay. And they go, yeah, no, Jesus, you know, good teacher and all. I mean, nice guy. You know, probably a lot of us should, you know, we could probably use a little more of him and a lot more people like him maybe, but no, not down with Jesus. Not doing that. I mean, after all, I've got 4,000 square feet and a Lexus. And I can't really see what I need Jesus for. Because after all, things are going fairly well. And maybe if I get in crisis, you know, like if I get cancer or something, I'll call you and we'll talk some more. But until then, really, I mean, I got life pretty well wired. Follow a dead carpenter from... Galilee 2,000 years ago? Uh, no. No. Not doing that. And Peter says, they stumble because they disobey the word which they were destined to do. Here's the contrast. If you go back to uh, chapter 1, verse 22, he says, that believers are those who have purified themselves by obedience to the truth. And here in, in chapter 2, uh, verse 8, he says that unbelievers don't believe because they stumble and fall over Christ, who is the living stone, and therefore they are destined for disobedience. Now, I don't want to get into a big theological discourse on this, but let me summarize a whole lot of biblical teaching for you. Apart from God's direct intervention in someone's life, in other words, unless God intrudes, in what someone is choosing to do. And he says, whoa, oh, time out, everybody out of the pool. I am saving you from your sin. Then what happens is, is that all of us freely choose to continue in our disobedience and rebellion. 
unless God intervenes, unless God reaches down through space and time and snatches us out of the fire, then we are condemned. And on top of that, that we freely, willingly, excitedly go to our condemnation. That it is not that God says, no, I'm sending you to hell. It is that we are paddling as fast as we can downstream to get there. And unless God snatches our boat off the water, that's where we're going to happily head. Because to be an unbeliever is is to be culpably involved in rebellion against God. And to be happily participating in it and God has to intervene and grab us to prevent us from willingly going that way because apart from him that is our destiny God sent Jesus Christ so that would not have to be anyone's destiny and he made redemption freely and universally available but not all men will avail themselves of it amen Thanks be to God that he has been so gracious as to intervene on our behalf that that is not our destiny. Amen. There's more. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, chew chew on verse 9 here with me for just a minute. In the Old Testament, who are God's chosen people? The Jews. Uh, Who are the people that God claims as his own? The Jews. What are the Jews supposed to be? A holy nation. Who has the only priesthood that is sanctioned by God and given instruction as to how to be approved by God within that priesthood? Who are the people that have that? The Jews. So why does Peter apply all those labels to us? A couple things I want you to notice here. Number one, he says a, you are a royal priesthood. And that is very significant because in, the, in Israel, the royal family and the priesthood do not mix. There were two guys in the Old Testament who tried to mix them. Their names are Saul, which by the way, he has a great name. People ask for a king. And so God gave them a king named Saul, whose name means you ask for it. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> okay. His name mean, means ask of the Lord. <laughs> okay. In other words, you ask for it. Here's your guy. <laughs> okay. They wanted a king like all the other nations, so they got one like all the other nations had. Just like. And Saul would not wait on Samuel 
to offer the sacrifice before they went into battle. And so he decided he was going to take on the priestly role himself as king. And Samuel came right after this and confronted him. And Saul said, oh, I've, I've sinned, I've screwed up, I, I messed up, I'm sorry. And as Samuel turns to walk away, Saul grabs the hem of his robe. And it tears. And Samuel turns and says to him, Just as that has torn, God has torn the kingdom away from you. And he will give it to someone else better than you. And then there was a king in the line of David who, because he was in the line of David, did not lose his kingdom, but only because of that. But he did lose his authority and right to rule. And here's how that happened. He decided, he had the bright idea, I'll go into the temple and offer a sacrifice on my own. His name was Uzziah. And Uzziah went into the temple to offer sacrifice, and as soon as he walked in there, God struck him with leprosy. And so then he got leprosy in both of his feet where he could not walk. You think it's a good idea to walk into places you're not supposed to be? Fine. He won't walk again. And he didn't for the rest of his life. And his son became king in his place from that very day he began to rule. So you never mixed without severe, serious consequences, royalty and the priesthood. They were not to overlap. But, after King David, only Davidic kings from the tribe of Judah were regarded as legitimate rulers of the nation. And and only people who were Levites from the family that descended from Aaron were allowed to be priests. But you are a royal priest. And they are linked in us. How? Because of Jesus. Jesus is the son of David. Amen? Amen? He is the Messiah. He has the right to rule as the son of David. And he also possesses, according to the book of Hebrews, a priesthood. But it is not of the same order as the Levitical priesthood. It's a different kind of priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, who was the one who offered, who, to whom Abraham offered sacrifice. And so Jesus possesses both the role of priest and king. And you and I, who are the sons of the living God through faith in Jesus, are also members of the same order with Jesus and possess, therefore, a royal priesthood, something totally unknown in the Old Testament, apart from Melchizedek, who was a king and priest. You and I are also sons and daughters of the king and priests before him. That's an exciting thing. And in addition to that, look at verse 10. How can that be? He says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. This is a great, this is a great illusion that Peter is making. It's marvelous. If you, in fact, I've asked you to, in your small groups, you're going you're gonna to look at this. Uh, It's from Hosea chapter 1. 
Hosea is an Old Testament prophet, and he is given a very unique assignment. He is told by God, go and marry a woman who will run around on you and become a prostitute. How do you like to do that? I bet any of you men who are married, you did not go down to the local escort service and pick out a wife. Right? You would not do that any more than you would buy a car from a place that's having them for rent. Right? You wouldn't do that. But God tells Hosea, you go down to the brothel and you pick out a wife. Because I'm going to use you and your relationship with this woman to symbolize my relationship with the nation of Israel. Because like Hosea, God was perfectly faithful. And yet Israel, like Gomer, ran around on him constantly with other gods. In fact, literally, you know, this, rela- this symbol was a lot deeper than you think because the worship that Israel engaged in with these other gods and goddesses involved various types and kinds of sexual immorality and prostitution. And so God, God said, you want to know what this is like? Let me show you. Let me give you a word picture, a walking around living example of what this is like. And all of a sudden, Gomer becomes pregnant. And when the children come forth, she begins to see, and Hosea begins to see, that the kids don't look like me. Just as God's, the children that are coming forth in Israel don't look like their father, God. And so he names one of the kids, No Mercy. Or you can translate it if you want not loved. And he names another kid, not my kid, not my people. Can you imagine the pain that you would feel knowing that the woman with whom you are sharing your life and a vow and a bed is not sharing it with you alone? And he says, but, and this is what God says as a result of all this. He says, after she's run away from you, you go and you get her back. And Hosea does. He eventually goes and buys her out of slavery. Because her immorality has become so extreme and so she has become so distant from her husband that she has become enslaved to her pimp and she has now got to be bought back. And God says, you go and get her because that's what's going to happen to the nation of Israel. They're going to go into slavery and exile to one of the nations whose gods they worship. But I will bring them back. And in the very place where it was said to them, you have no mercy because you are not loved. I will say, you are loved and you are my people. And in the place where it was said, you're not my people, I will call you my people. And Peter takes that, that prophecy and he says, do you know who not my people were? Us, Gentiles. And now we are called children of the living God. And do you know who had not received mercy? Us, who were Gentiles, who had no natural claim 
to any kind of relationship with God. And now we are God's people. Once we were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And if you go back to verse 9, look at the word that in verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Circle the word that. Because everything after that gives you a reason why God did this. And therefore a reason for which we can praise God. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, that's the contrast with our old life and how we are today. Once you were living in the dark and God came into our lives and he flipped the light on and said, isn't it much easier to live in a house with lights? Now we're not stumbling around anymore. That always happens to me. You know, we have a house with Legos. Right? Some of you know what I'm about to say. If you don't turn the light on, you're going to have that up to number 11 pain in the sole of your foot. You step on one of these things, right? But if you turn the light on, you can see where Luke Skywalker's head is or whatever, you know, on the floor. And you can avoid these things. And God has, in the same way, brought us out of darkness in the light where we can see clearly. And we don't stumble around. We don't have to get hurt anymore. By the way, things blow up when we live, it, live our life on our own way. He has made us His people. Though we had no natural claim to that status. He has given mercy to us who were His enemies. And even though we have done nothing to make ourselves acceptable to God, He graciously accepts and loves us anyway. That's mercy. And if we can do nothing else, if we can think of no other reasons for which to praise God, these are some reasons. These are reasons. These things ought to drive and lead us to worship. Because we can always say to the one who brought me out of darkness into the light, be praise, honor, and glory. To the one who made me his people, even though I am not his people. I am not a Jew. I am not a member of the people of God whom God chose out of all the nations of the world. And yet God grafted me into that tree and made me His. And even though I have done everything to run away from God that I could possibly do, He showed me mercy and saved me anyway. Brothers and sisters, Do we have reason to praise God or not? We have reason to praise God. Amen? And these things ought to lead us to worship. And on top of that, they ought to also 
drive us toward evangelism. Look at that word proclaim. Circle it. Proclaim. That means with your mouth announce the excellencies of him who did these things. Right? In fact, verse 11 to 12 tells us and reminds us that this worshiping and proclaiming that we're to do about the excellencies of Christ is not something we simply do when we gather together on Sunday morning. It's something we must do as part of that. But it's also this life, if you have not noticed yet, is an away game. We do not play on home court. We do not get the home field advantage. Amen? We live, as Paul says, I mean, as Peter says here, sojourners and exiles. This world is not our home. The culture we live in is not friendly to us and is not supposed to be. We live our life here away from home. We're sojourners and exiles. And therefore, we are also to pursue holiness, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those among whom we live. That as an eternal testimony to those people that we dwell among, that they might see the life that we live and they go, this person seems to be living on a higher plane. Because we are not called as the children of God to be weird. Okay? We are not called to be weird. We are not called to be odd. But we are called to be better than everybody else. Okay? That doesn't mean that if you're a Christian, you have to get a stupid haircut. Right? Or wear pants that are too short. Or, you know, something like that. Okay? Some people do. You don't, God doesn't call us to be just strange. But He does call us to be morally and spiritually attuned to Him, which makes us stick out. We want to stick out for the right reason. Right? Not because we look stupid, but because... Right? But because we know the living God. And that makes our life different. And causes them to say, I'm not a Christian, but if I were one, I'd want to be one like that. You know, I've heard about a, a philosopher, a French philosopher named Luc Ferry. And he has written a book on uh, a short history of thought. And the interesting thing is, the guy is an atheist. But he says, you know, the dream of philosophy, the highest of all ideas, the greatest of all concepts that you can come up with historically, uh, philosophically, theologically, whatever you can come up with, the best of all ideas is the idea that there is a personal God who makes himself known in an infallible way and comes and dwells among people and who gives them a standard of truth and of right and wrong and gives them uh, himself that they might know him and be transformed and changed. In other words, Christianity is the greatest of all possible ideas. And he says, I would accept that if I thought it was true. 
He doesn't believe that it's true. But even an atheist recognizes that this is the best of all possible things. And the fact that it is true makes it so much more marvelous than anything that is else that is out there. It is like it is like roller skates versus a new Mercedes. Okay, yeah, they both have four wheels, but one is an infinitely better method of transportation, amen? And he says, you live such excellent lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he returns, the day of visitation. Well, as we close, let's reflect on a couple things together. Number one, to you, who is Jesus Christ? Is he the stumbling stone or the cornerstone? Is Jesus the source of new life and forgiveness and freedom and membership in the people of God? Is he the cornerstone that directs and provides the model for everything else you do in your life? Or is he the stumbling stone and the rock of offense? Whom you two at this point have rejected as a hindrance to living how you want. If Jesus is offensive to you up till now, let me encourage you and invite you to change your mind. It is not too late to reevaluate your estimation of Jesus. It is not too late to hear God's message to you and to change your destiny from one of condemnation to honor. It is not too late to stop running from God as your judge and start running to Him as Savior. All you have to do is put your trust in Him right now. Transfer your trust from yourself over to the Savior and say, I believe that Jesus is the Savior who died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead to give me new life. And he will become for you no longer the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense, but the cornerstone which orients everything else in your life. Question number two. If we are priests, what is the quality of the sacrifices we are offering? Every priest in the Old Testament had to inspect the sacrifices and only offer to God the very best of what was there. And the same principle applies to us today. That's why Peter tells us to pursue holiness so that what we're offering of ourselves as a sacrifice to God would be our best. How are you doing with that? Are there areas of your life that as you pray and as you honestly ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you areas of your life that you look and you see spots and blemishes? If so, now is the time for confession and for reclaiming your relationship with God, receiving forgiveness and healing so that the sacrifices we offer to our Lord Jesus Christ might be without spot and without blemish. Amen? Number three. Let's join together to praise God for His mercy, for His love for us, for bringing us out of the dark and into the light. When we sing, 
when we pray, when we read our Bible, when we go through our day, when we go to work, there ought to be within us a deep and abiding appreciation for the reality that God has been unspeakably, unimaginably, amazingly gracious and merciful to us. And therefore, we ought to carry with us an attitude of praise. Amen? And when we come here on Sunday morning, we ought not be going, when is this going to be over? But when do I get to come to the house of the Lord and praise God with His other children that we have done these things, we have experienced all of this grace? Join together to praise God. Last thing, and then I'll be quiet. Let's proclaim His excellencies with both our lives and our lips to a lost and dying world. God's plan is that more people than just you and I are snatched from the fire. Amen? And He also has planned to use you and me with both our lives and our lips to proclaim His excellencies. And so let's join together in proclaiming Him. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, I do pray that You would be honored as we gather around You and we celebrate the mercies the manifold mercies and grace of the living God. Father, may all of our lives be an act of worship, an acceptable sacrifice offered to you through Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.